A Christian on the Mount, a Treatise Concerning Meditation by Thomas Watson. The proposition asserted, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. Having led you through the chamber of delight in my previous discourse, I will now bring you into the withdrawing room of meditation. In his law does he meditate day and night. Number one, the opening of the words and the proposition asserted. Grace breeds delight in God, and delight breeds meditation. Meditation is a duty wherein consist the essentials of religion, and which nourishes the very lifeblood of it. That the psalmist may show how much the godly man is habituated to this blessed work of meditation, he subjoins, In his law does he meditate day and night. Not but that there may be sometimes intermission, God allows time for our calling. He grants some relaxation. But when it is said the godly man meditates day and night, the meaning is frequently. He is much conversant in this duty. It is a command of God to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. The meaning is not that we should always be praying, but that we should every day set some time apart for prayer. We read in the old law, it was called the continual sacrifice, Numbers chapter 28, verse 24. Not that the people of Israel did nothing else but sacrifice, but because they had their stated hours every morning and evening they offered, therefore, it was called the continual sacrifice. Thus the godly man is said to meditate day and night. That is, he is often at this work. He is no stranger to meditation. Doctrine. The proposition that results out of this text is that a godly Christian is a meditating Christian. Psalm 119.15 I will meditate in your precepts. 1 Timothy 4.15 Meditate upon these things. Meditation is the chewing upon the truths we have heard. The beasts in the old law which did not chew the cud were unclean. The professor who does not by meditation chew the cud is to be accounted unclean. Meditation is like the watering of the seed. It makes the fruits of grace to flourish. Number two, showing the nature of meditation. If it be inquired what meditation is, I answer, meditation is the soul's retiring of itself, that by a serious and solemn thinking upon God, the heart may be raised up to heavenly affections. This description has three branches. Number one, meditation is the soul's retiring of itself. A Christian, when he goes to meditate, must lock up himself from the world. The world spoils meditation. Christ went by himself into the mountainside to pray. Matthew 14, 23. So go into a solitary place when you are to meditate. Isaac went out to meditate in the field. Genesis 24, 63. He sequestered and retired himself that he might take a walk with God by meditation. Zacchaeus had a mind to see Christ, and he got out of the crowd. He ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Luke 19, verses 3 and 4. So when we would see God, we must get out of the crowd of worldly business. We must climb up into a tree by retiredness of meditation. And there we shall have the best prospect of heaven. 
The world's music will either play us asleep or distract us in our meditations. When a mote has gotten into the eye, it hinders the sight. Just so, when worldly thoughts as motes are gotten into the mind, which is the eye of the soul, it cannot look up so steadfastly to heaven by contemplation. Therefore, as when Abraham went to sacrifice, he left his servant and the donkey at the bottom of the hill. Genesis 22, verse 5. So when a Christian is going up the hill of meditation, he should leave all secular cares at the bottom of the hill, that he may be alone, and take a turn in heaven. If the wings of the bird are full of slime, she cannot fly. Meditation is the wing of the soul. When a Christian is beslimed with earth, he cannot fly to God upon this wing. Bernard, when he came to the church door, used to say, Stay here, all my worldly thoughts, that I may converse with God in the temple. So say to yourself, I am going now to meditate. Oh, all you vain thoughts, stay behind. Come not near. When you are going up to the mount of meditation, take heed that the world does not follow you, and throw you down from the top of this pinnacle. This is the first thing, the soul's retiring of itself. Lock and bolt the door against the world. Number two. The second thing in meditation is a serious and solemn thinking upon God. The Hebrew word to meditate signifies with intenseness to recollect and gather together the thoughts. Meditation is not a cursory work to have a few transient thoughts of religion, like the dogs of Nihilus that lap and then run away. But there must be in meditation a fixing the heart upon the object, a steeping the thoughts. Carnal professors have their thoughts roving up and down, and will not fix on God, like the bird that hops from one branch to another, and stays in no one place. David was a man fit to meditate. O oh God, my heart is fixed. Psalm 108.1 In meditation, there must be a staying of the thoughts upon the object. A man who rides quickly through a town or village, he minds nothing. But an artist, who is looking on a curious piece, views the whole portraiture of it. He observes the symmetry and proportion. He minds every shadow and color. A carnal, flitting professor is like the traveler. His thoughts ride hastily. He minds nothing of God. A wise Christian is like the artist. He views with seriousness and ponders the things of religion. Luke 2.19 But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Number three. The third thing in meditation is the raising of the heart to holy affections. A Christian enters into meditation as a man enters into the hospital, that he may be healed. Meditation heals the soul of its deadness and earthliness, but more of this afterwards. Number three, proving meditation to be a duty. Meditation is a duty lying upon every Christian, and there is no disputing our duty. Meditation is a duty. Imposed and opposed. Number one, meditation is a duty imposed. It is not arbitrary. The same God who has bid us believe has bid us meditate. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night. These words, though spoken to the person of Joshua, yet they concern everyone, as the promise made to Joshua concerned all believers. Joshua 1.5, compared with Hebrews 13.5. So this precept 
made to the person of Joshua, you shall meditate in this book of the law, takes in all Christians. As God's word does direct, so his will must enforce obedience. Number two, meditation is a duty opposed. We may conclude it is a good duty because it is against the stream of corrupt nature. As one said, you may know that religion is right, which Nero persecutes. So you may also know that a duty is good, which the heart opposes. We shall find naturally a strange averseness from meditation. We are swift to hear, but slow to meditate. To think of the world, if it were all day long, is delightful. But as for holy meditation, how does the heart wrangle and quarrel with this duty? It is like doing a penance. Now truly, there needs no other reason to prove a duty to be good than the reluctancy of the carnal mind. To instance, in the duty of let a man deny himself, Matthew sixteen twenty four, self-denial is as necessary as heaven. But what disputes are raised in the heart against it? What, to deny my reason and become a fool that I may be wise? Nay, not only to deny my reason, but my righteousness? What, to cast it overboard and swim to heaven upon the plank of Christ's merits? This is such a duty that the heart does naturally oppose and enter into dissent against. This is an argument to prove the duty of self-denial good. Just so it is with this duty of meditation. The secret antipathy the heart has against it shows it to be good, and this is reason enough to enforce meditation. Number four, showing how meditation differs from memory. The memory, a glorious faculty, which Aristotle calls the soul's scribe, sits and pens all things that are done. Whatever we read or hear, the memory does register. Therefore, God does all his wondrous works that they may be had in remembrance. There seems to be some analogy and resemblance between meditation and memory, but I conceive there is a double difference. Number one, meditation has more sweetness in it than the bare remembrance. The memory is the chest or cupboard to lock up a truth. Meditation is the palate to feed on it. The memory is like the ark in which the manna was laid up. Meditation is like Israel's eating of the manna. When David began to meditate on God, it was sweet to him as marrow. Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6. There is as much difference between a truth remembered and a truth meditated on as between a cordial in a glass and a cordial drunk down. Number two, the remembrance of a truth without the serious meditation on it will but create matter of sorrow another day. What comfort can it be to a man when he comes to die to think he remembered many excellent notions about Christ but never had the grace so to meditate on them as to be transformed into them? A sermon remembered but not ruminated will only serve to increase our condemnation. Number five, showing how meditation differs from study. The student's life looks like meditation but does vary from it. Meditation and study differ three ways. Number one, they differ in their nature. Study is a work of the brain, meditation of the heart. Study sets the mind on work, meditation sets the heart on work. Number two, they differ in their design. The design of study is notion. 
The design of meditation is piety. The design of study is the finding out of a truth. The design of meditation is the spiritual improvement of a truth. The one searches for the vein of gold. The other digs out the gold. Number three, they differ in the outcome and result. Study leaves a man never a whit the better. It is like a winter sun that has little warmth and influence. Meditation leaves one in a holy frame. It melts the heart when it is frozen and makes it drop into tears of love. Number six, showing the subjects of meditation. The next particular to be discussed is the subject matter of meditation. What a Christian should meditate upon. I am now gotten into a large field, but I shall only glance at things. I shall but do as the disciples pluck some ears of corn as I pass along. Some may say, Alas, I am so barren, I know not what to meditate upon. To help Christians, therefore, in this blessed work, I shall show you some choice select matter for meditation. There are 15 things in the Word of God which we should principally meditate upon. Section 1. Meditate on God's Attributes. The attributes of God are the several beams by which the divine nature shines forth to us, and there are six special attributes which we should fix our meditations upon. Meditate upon God's omniscience. His eye is continually upon us. He has a window open into the conscience. Our thoughts are unveiled before Him. He can tell the words we speak in our bedchamber. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. He is described with seven eyes to show His omniscience. You number my steps. Job fourteen sixteen. The Hebrew word signifies to take an exact account. God is said to number our steps when He makes a precise and critical observation of our actions. God sets down every step of our lives and keeps, as it were, a day book of all we do and enters it down into the book. Meditate much on this omniscience. Meditation on God's omniscience would have these effects. Number one, it would be as a bridle to check and restrain us from sin. Will the thief steal when the judge looks on? Number two, meditation on God's omniscience would be a good means to make the heart sincere. God has set a window in every man's breast. Does not he see all my ways? Job 31.4 If I harbor proud, malicious thoughts, if I look at my own interests more than Christ's, if I juggle in my repentance, the God of heaven takes notice. Meditation on his omniscience would make a Christian sincere, both in his actions and aims. Only a fool would dare to be a hypocrite before God. Meditate on the holiness of God. Holiness is the embroidered robe God wears. It is the glory of the Godhead. Exodus 15:11. Glorious in holiness. Holiness is the most orient pearl of the crown of heaven. God is the exemplar and pattern of holiness. It is primarily and originally in God as light in the sun. You may as well separate weight from lead or heat from fire as holiness from the divine nature. God's holiness is that whereby his heart rises against any sin as being most diametrically opposite to his essence. Habakkuk 1.13 you are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Meditate much on this attribute. Meditation on God's holiness would have this effect. It would be a means to transform us into the similitude and likeness of God. 
God never loves us until we are like Him. There is a story of a deformed man who set lovely pictures before his wife, that seeing them she might have lovely children, and so she had. Be that as it may, while by meditation we are looking upon the beams of holiness, which are gloriously transparent in God, we shall grow like Him and be holy as He is holy. Holiness is a beautiful thing. Psalm 110. It puts a kind of angelic brightness upon us. It is the only coin which will pass current in heaven. By the frequent meditation on the attribute, we are changed into God's image. Meditate on the wisdom of God. He is called the only wise God, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. His wisdom shines forth in the works of providence. He sits at the helm, guiding all things regularly and harmoniously. He brings light out of darkness. He can strike a straight stroke by a crooked stick. He can make use of injustice in men to do that which is just. He is infinitely wise. He breaks us by afflictions, and upon these broken pieces of the ship, brings us safely to the shore. Meditate on the wisdom of God. Meditation on God's wisdom would sweetly calm our hearts. Number one, when we see things go badly in the public, the all-wise God holds the reins of government in His hand. And whoever the earthly ruler, God overrules. He knows how to turn all to good. His work will be beautiful in its season. Number two, when things go badly with us in particular, the meditation on God's wisdom would rock our hearts quiet. The wise God has set me in this condition, and whether health or sickness, His wisdom will order it for the best. God will make a golden cordial from poison. All things shall be beneficial and medicinal to me. Either the Lord will expel some sin or exercise some grace. Meditation on this would silence murmuring. Meditate on the power of God. His power is visible in the creation. He hangs the earth upon nothing. Job 26, 7. What cannot that God do who can create? Nothing can stand before a creating power. He needs no pre-existent matter to work upon. He needs no instruments to work with. He can work without tools. He it is before whom the angels veil their faces, and the kings of the earth cast their crowns. He it is who removes the earth out of her place, Job 9.6. An earthquake makes the earth tremble upon her pillars, but God can shake it out of its place. God can with a word unpin the wheels and break the axle of the creation. He can suspend natural agents, stop the lion's mouth, cause the sun to stand still, make the fire not to burn. Xerxes, the Persian monarch, threw fetters into the sea as if he would have chained up the unruly waters. But when God commands, the winds and the sea obey him. Matthew eight twenty seven. If he speaks the word, an army of stars appear. Judges 5, 20. If he stamps his foot, a multitude of angels are presently in battalia. If he lifts up an ensign and does but hiss, his armies shall be up in arms to revenge his quarrel. Isaiah 5, 56. Who would provoke this God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. As a lion, he tears in pieces his adversaries. Psalm 50, verse 22. 
Oh, meditate on this power of God. Meditation on God's power would be a great stay to faith. A Christian's faith may anchor safely upon the rock of God's power. It was Samson's riddle. Out of the strong came forth sweetness. Judges 14.14 While we are meditating on the power of God, out of this strong comes forth sweetness. Is the church of God low? He can create praises in Jerusalem. Isaiah 65.28 Is your corruption strong? God can break the head of this Leviathan. Is your heart as hard as a stone? God can dissolve it. The Almighty makes my heart soft. Faith triumphs in the power of God. Out of this strong comes forth sweetness. Abraham, meditating on God's power, did not stagger through unbelief. Romans 4.20 He knew God could make a dead womb fruitful and dry breasts give suck. Number five, meditate upon the mercy of God. Mercy is an innate disposition in God to do good. As the sun has an innate property to shine. Psalm 86.5 You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy to all them that call upon you. God's mercy is so sweet that it makes all his other attributes sweet. Holiness without mercy and justice without mercy would be dreadful. Geographers write that the city of Syracuse in Sicily is curiously situated, that the sun is never out of sight. Though the children of God are under some cloud of affliction, yet the sun of mercy is never quite out of sight. God's justice reaches to the clouds, his mercy reaches above the clouds. How slow is God to anger? He was longer in destroying Jericho than in making the world. He made the world in six days, but he was seven days in demolishing the walls of Jericho. How many warning arrows did God shoot against Jerusalem before he shot off his destroying arrow? Justice goes by foot, Genesis 18:21. Mercy has wings. The sword of justice often lies a long time in the scabbard and rusts until sin draws it out and sharpens it against a nation. God's justice is like the widow's oil, which ran a while and ceased. 1 Kings 4, 6. God's mercy is like Aaron's oil, which rested not on his head, but ran down to the skirts of his garments. Psalm 133, 2. So the golden oil of God's mercy does not rest upon the head of a godly parent, but is often poured on his children, and so runs down to the third and fourth generation, even the borders of a pious seed, often meditate upon the mercy of God. Meditation on mercy would be a powerful lodestone to draw sinners to God by repentance. It would be as a cork to the net, to keep the heart from sinking in despair. Behold, a city of refuge to fly to. God is the Father of mercies, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Mercy does as naturally issue from him as the child from the parent. God delights in mercy. Micah 7.18 Chrysostom says, It is delightful to the mother to have her breast drawn, and how delightful is it to God to have the breast of mercy drawn. Mercy finds out the worst sinner. Mercy comes not only with salvation in its hand, but with healing under its wings. Meditation on God's mercy would melt a sinner into tears. One reading, a pardon, sent to him from the king, fell a-weeping, and burst out into these words, A pardon has done for me that which death could not do. It has made my heart relent. Number six, meditate upon the truth of God. Mercy makes the promise, and truth performs it. Psalm eighty-nine, thirty-three. 
I will not allow my faithfulness to fail. God can as well deny Himself as His Word. He is abundant in truth. Exodus 34, 6. That is, if God has made a promise of mercy to His people, He will be so far from coming short of His Word that He will be better than His Word. God often does more than He said. Nevertheless, He often shoots beyond the mark of the promise He has set, never short of it. He is abundant in truth. God may sometimes delay a promise. He will not deny it. The promise may lie a long time as seed hidden underground, but it is all the while a ripening. The promise of Israel's deliverance lay 430 years underground. But when the time was come, the promise did not go a day beyond its reckoning. Exodus 12:41. The strength of Israel will not lie. 1 Samuel 15:29. Meditation on God's truth would, number one, be a pillar of support for faith. The world hangs upon God's power, and faith hangs upon His truth. Number two, Meditation on God's Word would make us ambitious to imitate Him. We should be true in our words, true in our dealings. Pythagoras, being asked, What makes men like God answered when they speak truth? Section 2. Meditate upon the promises of God. The promises of God are flowers growing in the paradise of Scripture. Meditation, like the bee, sucks out the sweetness of them. The promises are of no use or comfort to us until they are meditated upon. Roses hanging in the garden may give a fragrant redolence, yet their sweet water is distilled only by the fire. Just so the promises are sweet in reading over, but the water of these roses, the spirits and quintessence of the promises are distilled into the soul only by meditation. The incense, when it is pounded and beaten, smells sweetest. Meditating on a promise, like the beating of incense, makes it more fragrant and pleasant. The promises may be compared to a gold mine, which only enriches when the gold is dug out. By holy meditation, we dig out that spiritual gold which lies hidden in the midst of the promise, and so we come to be enriched. Cardin says that every precious gemstone has some hidden virtue in it, they are called precious promises, 2 Peter 1.4. When they are applied by meditation, then their virtue appears and they become precious indeed. There are three sorts of promises which we should meditate upon. Number one, promises of remission. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins, Isaiah 43.25. Whereas the poor sinner may say, Alas, I am deep in debt with God. I fear I have not filled his bottle with my tears, but I have filled his book with my debts. Well, but meditate on his promise. I am he who blots out. The word there in the original to blot out is a metaphor, alluding to a merchant who when his debtor has paid him, he blots out the debt and gives him an acquittance. So says God, I will blot out your sin. I will cross out the debt book. In the Hebrew, it is I am blotting out your transgressions. I have taken my pen and am crossing out your debt. Oh, but may the sinner say, there is no reason God should do this for me. Well, but acts of grace do not go by reason. I will blot out your sins for my name's sake. Oh, says the sinner, will not the Lord call my sins again to remembrance? 
No, he promises to send them into oblivion. I will not upbraid you with your sins. I will remember your sins no more. Here is a sweet promise to meditate upon. It is a hive full of the honey of the gospel. Number two, meditate upon promises of sanctification. The earth is not so apt to be overgrown with weeds and thorns as the heart is to be overgrown with lust. Now God has made many promises of healing, Hosea 14.4, and purging, Jeremiah 33.8, promises of sending His Spirit, Isaiah 44.3, which, for its sanctifying nature, is compared sometimes to water, which cleanses the vessel, sometimes to wind, which is the fan to winnow and purify the air, sometimes to fire, which refines the metals. Meditate often on that promise, Isaiah 118. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Scarlet is so deep a dye that all the art of man cannot take it out. But behold, hear a promise, God will whiten the soul. He will make the scarlet sinner into a snow-white saint. By virtue of this refining and consecrating work, a Christian is made partaker of the divine nature. He has a suitability and fitness to have communion with God forever. Meditate much on this promise. Number three, meditate upon promises of remuneration. The haven of rest, Hebrews 4, 9. The beautiful side of God, Matthew 5, 8. The glorious mansions, John 14, 2. Meditation on these promises will be as choice cordials to keep us from fainting under our sins and sorrows. Section 3. Meditate upon the love of Christ. Christ is full of love, as He is of merit. What was it but love that He should save us, and not the fallen angels? Among the rarities of the lodestone, this is not the least, that leaving the gold and pearl, it should draw iron to it, which is a baser kind of metal, just so that Christ should leave the angels, those more noble spirits, the gold and pearl, and draw mankind to Him. How does this proclaim His love? Love was the wing on which He flew into the virgin's womb. Number one, how transcendent is Christ's love to the saints? The apostle calls it a love which passes knowledge. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. It is such a love as God the Father bears to Christ. The same for quality, though not equality. John fifteen nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. A believer's heart is the garden where Christ has planted this sweet flower of His love. It is the channel through which the golden stream of His affection runs. Number two, how sovereign is Christ's love. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. In the old law, God passed by the noble lion and the eagle and took the dove for sacrifice. That God should pass by so many of noble birth and abilities and that the lot of free grace should fall upon me? Oh, the depth of divine grace. Number three, how invincible is the love of Christ. It is strong as death. Canticles 8.6 Death might take away Christ's life but not His love. Neither can our sin wholly quench that divine flame of love. The church had her infirmities, her sleepy fits. Canticles 5.2 But though blacked and sullied, 
yet she is still a dove. Christ could see the faith and wink at the failing. He who painted Alexander drew him with his finger over the scar on his face. Just so Christ puts the finger of mercy upon the scars of the saints. He will not throw away his pearls for every speck of dirt. That which makes this love of Christ the more stupendous is that there was nothing in us to excite or draw forth his love. He did not love us because we were worthy, but by loving us, he made us worthy. Number four, how immutable is Christ's love. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. John 13, 1. The saints are like letters of gold engraved upon Christ's heart, which cannot be erased out. Meditate much upon the love of Christ. Number one, serious meditation on the love of Christ would make us love him in return. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burnt? Proverbs 6.28 Who can tread by meditation upon these hot coals of Christ's love and his heart not burn in love to him? Number two, meditation on Christ's love would set our eyes abroach with tears for our gospel unkindnesses. Oh, that we should sin against so sweet a Savior. Had we none to abuse but our best friend? Had we nothing to kick against but affections of love? Did not Christ suffer enough upon the cross? But must we needs make him suffer more? Do we give him more gall and vinegar to drink? Oh, if anything can dissolve the heart into mourning, it is the unkindness offered to Christ. When Peter thought of Christ's love to him, Christ could deny Peter nothing. Yet, he could deny Christ. This made his eyes to water. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Number three, meditation on Christ's love would make us love our enemies. Jesus Christ showed love to his enemies. We read of the fire licking up the water, 1 Kings 18.38. It is usual for water to quench fire, but for fire to dry up and consume the water, which was not capable of burning, this was miraculous. Such a miracle did Christ show his love burned where there was no fit matter to work upon, nothing but sin and enmity. He loved his enemies. The fire of his love consumed and licked up the water of their sins. He prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. He shed his tears for those who shed his blood. Those who gave him gall and vinegar to drink, to them he gave his sin-forgiving blood to drink. Meditation on his love should melt our hearts in love to our enemies. Augustine says, Christ made a pulpit of the cross, and the great lesson he taught Christians was to love their enemies. Number four, meditation on Christ's love would be a means to support us in case of his absence. Sometimes he is pleased to withdraw himself. Canticles 5.6 Yet when we consider how entire and immutable his love is, it will make us wait with patience until he sweetly manifests himself to us. He is love, and he cannot forsake his people very long. Micah chapter 7 verse 19 The sun may be gone for a while from our climate, but it returns in the spring. Meditation on Christ's love may make us wait for the return of this Son of Righteousness. Hebrews 10.37 For yet a little while, and he who shall come will come. He is truth, therefore he shall come. He is love, therefore he will come.